0: I put together a genealogy chart, and if you started reading, you know how essential that is. Um, When you get into Fire in the Hearth, you're you're probably gonna get lost a little bit if you don't put some things together. Um, So you have a genealogy chart. I put together a list of characters that will match up, and that will help too. It'll, it'll, It'll identify people, by their characters, but it'll also identify them by p- their period of time, where they are in the. And um, and I've also put together a little sheet. Um, oh, it's uh, it's it's a little summary of the of the stories Oh here. Bachner Goodell Moses, Characters by Stories. It's just one sheet that gets a very brief overview, but it gives you the basic dates um, of the people who were involved in that story so that you'll find it less confusing um, if you have this close at hand. Um, I don't think you're gonna have trouble with any of the particular stories fire in the hearth may give you some problems because there are a couple of flashbacks and if you're not clear on the names the differences between Roth uh, McCaslin and Zach, you know characters like that you can get a little bit lost but if you have this it should help and the same thing when you get to the bear when you get to the bear Faulkner is going to overlap times he's going to present different time periods and if you do, you may not get lost. But if you do, you'll have a reference point. And, and I'll probably hand out a few more things when we get to those stories. So don't get don't get panicky. Don't get panicky or worried about it. Um, it's not it's not easy to. Was this, this is, um, he, he, what he does really challenges us as readers. And um, I better I better speak to this right now. When you, read, when you read 19th century fiction, just as an example, you read Jane Austen or Charles Dickens, you're never lost, never. In a Dickens world, even if Dickens plays with time and he rarely does, um, you've got an omniscient narrator always telling you what's going on, basically. So somebody's holding your hand. You, you don't get lost. And um, equally importantly, if you go through the story, um, the story tends to move chronologically, in sequence, because it's assumed at that time that, um, that, that that's the principle that governs our lives, our human lives. When you get to modernity, the modern world, our world, after, particularly after Freud, and you, you begin to understand that memories and early experiences can have a greater effect on our lives than we realize, then writers start playing with time sequence because they know that time is never strictly linear. And I hope that's clear now. I mean, we can um, just think about a linear plot going from A to Z, okay? We know that even though time is linear like that, we can arrive in a moment, something can happen. We can be walking outside of a courtroom house or a post office, and something will strike us, and suddenly we'll be thrown back. 15 years. We, let, let me put it even dramatically. I mean, sorry, but to bring this home, let's say you're a widower or you've been widowed and you come to a place without even expecting anything to happen and you see a sign and suddenly you're taken back 12 years earlier. And that, that experience, that memory that jumps on you in that moment is just as real on that second as the linear time sequence you're in, right? which is showing that time isn't always as linear as we think it is. So the modern novelists recognize that, and they also do another thing. They know that as we move through life, we don't have an omniscient guide explaining everything that happens. Because we know that very often a a certain experience can mean different things to different people, and I'm not a relative, just one, one example. Let's take one really good example. Look at the Bible. You've got four different accounts of Christ's life. The the central truth doesn't change, but there's a different way of looking at that truth without claiming a relativism, that that he is the truth, the way he's there. You've got a variety of ways of looking at him. So modern writers are aware of that, and instead of having somebody come in to hold our hands, They present the world the way we experience it, moving through it. There's nobody mediating it, nobody explaining things, there's no teacher holding a hand. We go through it with the confusion and the uncertainties and and always feeling how important it is for us to interpret something, to understand. What was the meaning of? Why did it happen? You know, it can be be a simple thing. It can be a part of a vacation where you don't even think anything's going to happen and something comes up and you wonder, now what does that mean? You know, where does that fit in with my life? So, in great writers like Melville and now like Faulkner, you'll get a story told that's faithful to sequence in some respects, but all sorts of things happen that that make us aware that it's not a neat cause and effect moving from one thing to another. Things are going to interrupt, different time periods (coughs) come in and overlay, and during all of that, we have to work to figure it out. Now, lots of the handouts I'm giving you should help with that. I mean, it'll just make it a little bit easier to put things together. But one of the most important things to happen right now is that you should just enjoy that story with all of its confusion, um, because um, Fa- Faulkner is probably the greatest storyteller of the 20th century. True, I'm just—he's you know, extraordinary. Um, so, just in a, a couple of other confusions, some of his novels are all over the place, and I, 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 I still haven't read Absalom. I've had Absalom, *Absalon* on my nightstand for in our bedroom for probably fifteen years, and I haven't read that book. <laughs> but, but I know I know that there are sentences that you know run run hundreds of pages long. So anyway, um, you should enjoy this. This is this is actually a um, pretty readable. This go down Moses. You you shouldn't have major problems. And where there are confusions, you've got those handouts, and they should help. Okay. Um, can can anybody volunteer to bring something next week? Um, you know I will. I know you will. You, you are you are always going. Can you? We oh, got a question. Next week is. Is next Friday,
1: no. <coughs> the Friday. so we're Two okay. Weeks. <coughs> Two weeks from today's okay, Friday. So next week we're okay? Yeah.
0: Okay, okay. That's it. Any, um, um, would you like to add anybody to our morning prayer?
1: Yeah. My son Mark, he started his business, his own business last year, and his former boss is giving him such grief, and they used to be church uh, colleagues and it's just it's it's really he, he's just his ex boss is just making ex-boss. life miserable for him and he, he's being so unchristian and my son is just just remember him in your prayers
0: what's his name again mark, mark. this is the one we prayed for before for yes. other yeah, mark was, what's his it, boss's name bob.
1: bob and i and i I pray for Bob that he you know that he remembers his Christian upbringing,
0: and he's just—he's
1: just being so unChristian. So unChristian.
0: Uh, yeah, what did I thought.
1: And you think he would be? you know.
0: It must be hard to lose somebody good and feel your business And and what's, what's even
1: worse is that. My son and his family had to leave the church. They're not, they're, they don't go to Catholic church, they go to Christian church. And very active in that church, and a lot of good church friends. And because of Bob, they had to leave that church. Oh. Bob made it, you know, just so uncomfortable and, and, and saying untrue things about his <laughs> son. Oh, just.
0: Anybody else? Maybe,
1: uh... <clears throat> for my friend's mom, her name Nell. Nell? Nell. She, um, this week, she fell. She's, you know, like
2: in her upper 80s, and she fell and broke her hip and, oh. and had surgery yesterday.
1: And then she also has heart condition, so. Just wanna
0: These are our golden years. Mm-hmm. They should be. Oh, they happen to be. That is, I mean, that to me is one of the, what, the, those self-exposing American lies that we live in this dream world these years we'll retire and go off into the sunset. God, oh, save us from this country, all of us. (laughs) Anybody else? I'm praying for Mike because um, tomorrow's April Fool's Day and it's his birthday. Oh! Happy
3: birthday! He said he's
0: going to kill me if I said I know, look at him, he's all red. So i pray for you. <laughs> Our daughter-in-law's birthday is tomorrow too. Happy oh. birthday to the awesome.
1: daughter-in-law.
0: Let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, What was the refrain that God l- listens to the What?
3: close to the
0: broken heart. God is close, close to, to the, the brokenhearted. <clears throat> Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of this day for each of us, um, whatever its difficulties. Um, for your words to us in the Mass, your life itself, what we carry within us. Help us to find a strength in the divine life and within us to do those things that we could not do on our own. Um, strengthen us to as we move through this last part of Lent, help us to reinforce uh, our efforts to repent, to take seriously the work of putting away our sins. Help us not to be f- frightened of them, to trust in you, um, genuinely to turn away, um, so that we can grow into the goodness that you call us through the holiness. But this is a special blessing on Mark and Bob, both of them, that um, they can put away recriminations or bitterness, um, whatever it is between them that's related to business and money, how often those things get in our way. We're so afraid of poverty in this country. Um, Help both of them um, open their hearts, um, move to you and recover their friendship with each other. Watch over Nell. She's going to have an operation, Vic. She
1: had
0: it yesterday. Yes, she had it. Um, Help her recover. Let the operation be successful. Um, Help her to take care of herself in rehab um, and take it seriously, so she can get to her feet again and be active. And we ask um, a special blessing on Mike um, tomorrow. Um, Let him look back on all of his many years and be grateful uh, for um, his life and for this last year. (laughs) And with all that's entered his life recently, let him look forward with greater hope and gladness to the next year. And I ask a special blessing on Kathy. Protect her today. Um, Keep her safe from any recriminations. we offer all these prayers in Amen. your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. You had a good sense of humor.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Morning. <coughs> Where's and Linda and Tom? Where are they? Linda, oh, no. hey Mr. Dan. I carried all the. Oh. It says that um boy, I'm in between works. I'm sorry, I've got a I've been reading Go Down Moses. I can only read one work <laughs> at a time. It gets confusing today. No, if it gets more than unusually confusing today, pardon me please. Um if, uh, okay, uh, you start, yeah. just one question. Yeah. We all know that historians look at things differently. No two historians see the same thing. Do fictional writers do the same thing with historical facts? Um, Yeah, of course they do, but let me. Oh, wow. That is such a. um, Part of me wants to avoid that because that is such a. That's such a loaded question. Um, let me let me, let me answer it abstract. I mean, I'm not gonna I don't know that I'm gonna satisfy, you know, the what's behind your question for you, but when I went to Maglin to teach at Magdalene for a couple of years, they had a great books program there, and the way that they presented the the class, um, encourage, I think, black-white abstractions, in, in some ways, I don't think we. if you, If you go through the great books and you're not rooted in the disciplines, then you never learn the methods and ends and procedures that are peculiar. Say if you're a physicist, or a biologist, or, an anal- or a historian, or a literature person, the, the methods and means and ends of each one of those fields is different on a great program, great books program, because you don't have the disciplines behind you. You read for ideas. So you, you you come away with abstractions. I don't I myself think that's a loss in the way that we read. Because we always have to come back to the concrete world and get out of our heads. But one of the good things and there were problems with it was that they were so certain that there was this objective truth that we had to come to in response to the relativism of our age, because everybody, in, so many people in our country, think whatever I see is the truth, you know, and I believe this, and I, I, I have just as much right to believe this as you do. So you get into this relativistic way of looking at things, and they, they were trying to answer that disorder, but I think they went too far, because, because of this. Reason and it partly goes to what you're saying. So, hear me, I'm not espousing a relativism, I don't believe in it philosophically. I believe there's a truth, in, but I also believe that every one of us is made uniquely. Um, you're different from Kathy and Debbie, I'm you know, Bev, all of us are, are, are different. So, even and I just used the example when we started a few minutes ago. If you look at the gospel you've got four different men looking at the life of Christ and presenting it from four different perspectives. And each one of those perspectives, in a sense, reflects something peculiar to each one of those men. That's the more so with John, because his presentation of the gospel is, is so Greek and so almost ontological. He's, he's aware of ontological realities when he presents the word from the Father, the Father no- he who knows me knows the Father. You don't get that kind of emphasis in the Synoptic Gospel, say. So, um, and if, you were to, if you were to get five witnesses to an automobile accident on a corner, you'd get five different accounts. So, that's true in any field. Um, but insofar as we're struggling to get at truth, I mean, most people, I and mean, people who think about this at all, will recognize that there is one truth even if we come to it in different ways. So with historians, I mean, um, the the problem with historians, if I can put it that way, that sounds prejudiced but I don't mean it that way, Is um, historians are dealing with concrete realities, they're not dealing with universal truths. They have to, they're trying to do as well as they can to represent the concrete details of a period or whatever they take as their subject, 17th century history, say, or whatever. Um, different historians will tend to rep- represent the same period. Let's say you've got a dozen historians dealing with um, the Reformation to our time. Let's just pick up the subject. Um, you're likely to get a very very different account from each one of them because each one of them starts with certain presuppositions in their heads and then read those back into that period. So even if they're all dealing with, say the Re- you have ten historians reading the, the um, Reformation, you'll get ten different readings of it um, because they start with different ideas. Fiction's different because in fiction the, the writer's not accountable t- to literal reality. We've been talking about this from the beginning. I mean, you you haven't been here all along, but but I've been making the point that that literature is mimetic. It starts with the world it's trying to imitate something. But literature never duplicates the world, uh, or a or a or a photographer would give us a better rendering of the world. Every poet will always bring something to his creation that's something unique to him. So some people wrote about the Trojan War, Homer obviously saw some things that others didn't. So when he gives us the story of the Trojan War in the Iliad, he's showing us something that I think most of us say expressed a comprehensiveness and a depth that nobody got close to. Shakespeare's even better. Shakespeare actually takes works that are rooted in history. All the history plays are, are accounts of the Tudor battles or the, the battles between the royal families, you know, the, the Henriette plays. So he's actually rooting his plays in in what happened in history. Winter's Tale's not rooted in history, that's not a that's not an account of an actual event, it's a story. Um, but what, or take Hamlet's a, a better example. There was a historical Hamlet and Shakespeare knew enough about him to use him. The histori- We talked about this. The historical Hamlet lived around the ninth century. In Shakespeare's Hamlet, Hamlet's coming back from Wittenberg. You remember when he comes back when he learns that his father's died and his mother has married and it's crushed him. I mean, he feels like his mother's betrayed him to have married so, so quickly after his father's death. Uh, he comes back from Wittenberg. Wittenberg wasn't founded until... I can't remember now, 1503, 1505, 1513, I can't remember the exact. The real Hamlet lived in 9th century. Um, Wittenberg does, isn't founded until 15. How can he come back from a place that historically didn't... Shakespeare's not interested in historical literalism. He, he uses history to show things a historian will never show. Because as a poet, remember the cave image, He's trying to show some universal truth that helps people out of the cave. You all remember that, right? I mean, I hope we've gone over this a number of times. But in Plato's cave, and you remember, we're all, we're all relating to shadows. We think those shadows are the real truths when, as a matter of fact, they're projections from the people who are carrying books in front of the fire. They project those shadows. And Plato's critique is that all of us take appearances as reality the way things appear. We know that's not true. We know that every one of us carry, I can say this openly in this audience, I mean this group, um, we know that every one of us carries sins in ourselves and that they're hidden for the most part. I mean, pre- presumably in marriages we they get opened up more often because you can't live with a spouse without knowing. I mean, that's one of the problems with marriages today. You know, they think everything's going to be great, and they get married, and then they suddenly have to confront their sins and start pointing fingers and wanting out um, because they're trapped with those appearances. Shakespeare, every good poet—I mean, that's the presentation I've been making from the beginning. Every good poet it, who t- who takes Plato's critique seriously knows he has to present a world according to it is, according to its concrete um, appearances, exactly the way historian would. He has to be faithful to concrete realities. <coughs> but he'll go beyond far beyond the, what a historian does, because a historian never presents concretely the world. He'll talk about things. The poet actually renders those concrete things. He never talks about them. To talk about it means you're in a world of cliff notes or summaries. And is this clear?
2: Yeah.
0: The poet always renders the concrete. That's why he always returns us to the world but he does it through a form that brings us to some truth that a historian never would. So every poet, every historian will bring something peculiar to his own temper, to to his own beliefs, to the way he reads things. Every poet does the same thing, but if he's a good poet, he's got to take Plato's critique seriously. He's got to find in concrete realities something timeless, eternal, you know otherwise we wouldn't be here there would be no point the whole point of this we're we're doing together is to find out if Christ is somewhere present in our world where we don't see him so hi Tom is Linda coming good i was missing you wondering where you were glad you're here
2: we have a bit well of a time at home
0: yeah um Deb has still got some, and she brought some stuff for anybody who hasn't. Okay, let's let's start. Um, I'm going to do two things to start. It's interesting that you should. Mike, I I can't take too much time, but did that answer it? Yes, it did. Okay. Um, We have not talked about poetry as poetry for so long, and I. And I say that because I know that I go through periods where I feel like I'm knocking you guys over the head, that I'm, I've am i taken lots of classes and, and tried to present more and more and different aspects of poetry and talk about what it does, the kind of knowledge that it gives us. Because most people don't think of poetry as a kind of knowledge. And you know, for me, I just don't think that's true. Most people look at poetry as a form of escape. You know, it's fiction, it's leisure. You you read it when you read it when you're not when you you read it when you're not being responsible to the world. To to read poetry is to be childish and irresponsible and go into a make believe world. Well, you know my feelings about that. So, Um, but today I wanted to do something because we're gonna we're gonna end we're gonna finish up our work with Melville, and we have not talked about. Melville's poetry, and we're not going to really at any length, the, the theme of Moby Dick is so important that I want to get to that. But I don't want to lose this chance before we put him away to just read some things. I, you all know this, I think well, that at the center of that novelist or epic soul is a poet because of what he does with language. I'm sure you've all experienced it. Before we put him down, I want to read just a couple of passages and then make a brief comment on it. So page 624. I'm going to read this just for the poetry. This is um, this is a reminder of what I've said so often before, that the poet is the one who returns us to the concrete world. We're not in our heads, we're not in abstractions, we're not in ideas, and I think, I hope I've been clear, one of my fears for all of us is that so often we get in ideas to protect us against reality because concrete reality can be frightening, it's a place of risk, adventure. That's where we, if you know, if you're in a marriage, you can live in ideas, but in some ways, that protects you from the wounds that you give each other the, 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 the suffering of wounds in a relationship, whatever it can be with the sun in a son and a. You know, a former boss. To return to the concrete world returns us to mystery, and and where we find God. At least that's what we've been doing together. So, I don't want to lose that. And I, because we so often get in ideas, I'm talking about themes, and they get they take the form of ideas when we talk about them. So, I just want to read a couple of passages just to remind everybody of what it is we're dealing with here. It's page six twenty four. Like noiseless, nautilus shells, their light prows sped through the sea. But only slowly they neared the foe. Now remember, those of you who are here with the Iliad, remember how important the battle scene was. You could not turn a page in the Iliad and not get descriptions of people killing each other. There was a battle on every page. We don't think about chasing whales as a battle. But here it is, it's laid out. Slowly they neared the foe. As they neared him, the ocean grew still more smooth. Seemed drawing a carpet over its waves, seemed a noon meadow, so serenely it spread. At length, the breathless hunter came so nigh his seemingly unsuspecting prey that his entire dazzling hump was distinctly visible, sliding along the sea as if an isolated thing. And continually set in a revolving ring of finest fleecy greenish foam. He saw the vast, involved wrinkles of the slightly projecting head beyond and see the ship slowly overtaking Moby Dick and all of these things gradually coming into view. Mike, think about this just for a second. How many writers describing their approach to a whale would have described it like this? I mean, this is so peculiar to him. His power, particularly a poetic power, for not only helping us visually to experience, but to feel onomatopoeia, but to describe it in a way that makes it possible for us to feel it as if we're there. Um seeing the noon meadow so serenely it spread, at length, the breathless hunter came nigh his seemingly unsuspecting prey that his entire dazzling hump was distinctly visible, sliding along the sea as if an isolated thing, and continually set in a revolving ring of finest fleecy greenish foam. He saw the vast, involved wrinkles of the slightly projecting head beyond, before it, far out on the on the soft Turkish rugged waters, went the glistening white shadow from his broad, milky forehead, a musical rippling playfully accompanying the shade, and behind the blue waters interchangeably flowed over into the moving valley of his steady wake. And on either hand the bright bubbles arose and danced by his side, but these were broken again by the light toes of hundreds of gay fowl softly feathering the sea. Alternate with their fitful flight and like to some flagstaff rising from the painted hull of an Argosy, the tall but shattered pole of a recent lance projected from the white whale's back, and at intervals one of the cloud of soft-toed fowls hovering and to and fro skimming like a canopy over the fish silently perched and rocked on the pole, the long tail feathers streaming like pennons. Extraordinary. And notice the underlying irony. Um, you've got this beautiful natural creature. He is, and, and as Melville's presented, he's a leviathan. He, one of the reasons people are so fascinated with him, that their tendency to look at him like he's a god, is because he's so powerful. He's so large. Stuck in this whale is this harpoon. And birds, who are in, absolutely indifferent to his suffering, they use it as a perch. So here you've got this scene, you know, which is probably not uncommon to a whaling industry, of of beauty and magnitude and power, and some irony, a, a sort of sense of irony of it all, because there's a human instrument that tried to kill him sticking out of it. It wasn't successful. And here are these birds perching on it. So, I mean, it goes right to your question. No two poets could ever come close to describing this in the same way. Turn over to 639. (laughs) This is the prelude, the opening lines to the third and final chase. This is, if we're looking at this as an orchestra, a symphony, a Beethoven symphony, this is the opening to the concluding movement. This is the third chase. The morning of the third day dawned fair and fresh, and once more the solitary nightman at the foremast head was relieved by crowds of daylight lookouts who dotted every mast and almost every spar. So you can see the mast like this with um, lookouts on top, and then across the spars are all these men, who, because they all want that they all want that doubloon. Um, and again, it's a comic sight. And and notice, Melville almost lets the comedy speak for himself in a Dickens world. You'd have Charles Dickens describing things. Like. What Melville does is just describe it. If there's a humor in it, we'll see it or miss it. Do you see him? cried Abe, But the Abe, the whale was not yet in sight. In his infallible wake, though. But follow that wake. That's all. Helm there, steady as thou goest, and hast been going. What a lovely day again! Were it a new-made world and made for a summer house to the angels. And this morning, the first of its throwing open to them a fair day could not dawn upon the world. Here's food for thought, Had Ahab time to think. But Ahab never thinks. He only feels, feels, feels that tingling enough for mortal man to think's audacity. God only has that right. He goes on. But those are, those are the lines of a poet They come from Ahab. And, and you could go through the book and find similar lines. And, and one of the things you have to say when you come away... Nobody could speak those lines except a poet. Ahab, whatever we say about it, he has the, pull, the soul of a poet. Um, what a lovely day again. We're at a new-made world and made for a summer house to the angels. And this morning, the first of its throwing open to them. F- it's like it's, it's the first day of creation. There's such a freshness to the morning. He's completely in touch with it. How many of the other mates would express their response to the day that way? None. None. Okay, so just to, (laughs) since I've been doing this for the whole time, just remember, poetry returns us to the world. The great poets do that and help us to feel things, see things that ordinarily we don't. But remember this too. It seems to me that one of the things that poetry always does in a way that no other field, not psychoanalysis, not psychoanalysis, because psychoanalysis is dealing with abstractions, theories, Poet will always take us back to a person so that we become as involved with him as if we know him from the inside. We know a lot about Ahab. We've experienced him inwardly in a way none of the people on the boat know him, except Ishmael coming to tell the story. So literature helps us to enter into the inner life of a person and know that person from the inside, to carry him. I'm going to make this point more strongly shortly. It helps us... To feel, so it 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 can increase our powers of empathy. Ishmael is walking around the wharf with this cannibal with tattoos on him. The, pres, the Presbyterians look at them in ridicule. It's one of the critiques of the Christian failing. Aham, I mean Ishmael, begins to be fond of this man. Even loves him. How many of us can get past appearances like that? Some guy walking down the street with tattoos all over his body, looking like a cannibal. Ishmael has made it possible for us to more identify. We know Queequeg would give his life for Ishmael. So we enter into the lives of other people. Now, they're fictitious persons, yes. But the, but the really great writers will, will write them so convincingly that we believe they're real and we enter into that life. The claim that I'm making here is hopefully that should help us to enter more fully into the lives of others. Religious people, people of faith are just as susceptible to sins as everybody else, Christian or not. Christians do bad things all the time. One of the problems with all of us is living uh, to objectify each other, to see others as, as objects. We've seen that from the very beginning, from the Iliad. The men were objects, they were things to kill, in order to increase their booty. Is there any difference in the modern world? I don't know it. People, the, 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 the idiom is to step over somebody, to advance, to get ahead. Every time you do that, you're stepping on somebody, leaving them behind. You're making that person an object. And I think most of us realize, I mean, from Christ and our beliefs, that, that in some ways we could be murdering those people. That's what, in effect, we're doing. Literature helps us to enter into that life so it, I think it helps make us more capable of empathy, of identifying with another, moving in um, more humanly to carry, to see more of that person, to carry more of that person within us. So the other person is not just an object, <coughs> okay? And I'm going to come to this at the very end, so. Anyway, that's, I haven't said much about poetry for a long time, so <laughs> with that, let me, let me start, Okay. Major questions, I want to put these out at the beginning and ask you to hold on to them while we just finish up our work here on on Moby Dick. These to me seem to be the most important questions to carry away and I'd like to come back to them at the end. Why is Ishmael chosen to narrate this book? Ishmael's the outcast one, and remember this, he says call me Ishmael. It's one of the most famous openings of any novel that's ever been written, or epic. Ishmael would not do that if his name were Ishmael. That's not his name. A person only does that when his identity is different. So at the very beginning, he's identifying himself with an outsider class. He's the outcast. So the Ishmael that we get at the beginning is... Um, different from the Ishmael that started the story, and from what we've seen, it, it's no wonder. He has become other than that Christian culture because that Christian culture is failing to live up to what it believes. So for him to begin the book saying, call me Ishmael, is to consciously, it's Melville's way of asking us to pay attention to the alternative to this Christian culture. That somehow he has to step outside of it. And it seems to me he brings us with him. That we have to look, we have to look at this Christian culture to see what's wrong with it from his eyes, and the whole story is about that. So we have to ask why Ishmael? And why did he survive it? And you know, all along I've been treating him as a Jonah story, I mean a Jonah figure. He he's the only one that survives it. He's identified with Jonah in the beginning, we saw that. He's the only one to survive it at the end. What is it that he's come back to tell us? If God asked Jonah to go to Nineveh because Nineveh was at a point of being destroyed, and we see the Pequod go down, it's destroyed at the end, there's there's an apocalyptic element to this, that that the America from which Ishmael comes is headed towards a destruction. If we take this seriously and see him as a Jonah figure, what does he come back to tell us? What is it that's important for us to know, w- without knowing, we, we, we suffer the same fate that the ship does. We, we, we go down with it. So what does he come back to tell us? What do we bring away from the story? That, that's the first. Ahab is a hero. He, um, I, I want to I get to this um, a minute because it's, this, it's what's opened up the last two weeks that blew me away. I'm going to wait to come back to this because I want to come to you. But um, how do we look at Ahab just superficially right now? How do we look at Ahab? Tragic hero? Um, is he damned or not? Let me leave it because I want to come back. I've got, a, I've got more to do with him. Um, and can we find Christ? The question we've always saved for last. When we put the book down, um, can we find Christ anywhere? <laughs> or once once again, is this um, parishioner you've been spending all this time with, whose background happens to be in literature, is he blowing gas again? What's going on? What's hot air? I mean, where is he? Is he in this book or not? Is that just um, pushing something that's really silly? So keep these questions with you, okay? Um, and then. What I want to do today, I've not done this before quite like this. I'm going I'm to spend the greater part of our time together this morning reading passages um, from the book to, to, in order to get more of Ahab fresh in our memories so we can tackle these questions. Um, okay, just a quick review. <coughs> We've seen the plot and the way that it develops by stages. The first part of the plot is the critique of the Christian culture and its failing. They go out to sea. The opening part of that journey at sea is Ishmael's exploration of metaphysical realities. If we start putting the book together, we have to see that the metaphysical realities for him are what's at issue with that failed Christian world, that they don't see these issues. And we last couple of weeks, which to me were blowaway weeks were the the implications of these Calvinistic beliefs. I want to come back to that in a moment. But in the, that opening part of Ishmael's treatment, we saw Ishmael exploring every aspect of reality. There was nothing he didn't look at: the sea, the air, the heavens, stories, whale stories, the ship itself, every aspect of the ship. So he was looking at an American enterprise, a commercial enterprise, in its various aspects. And there was, not a, there was not a chapter in which he offered his reflections where he didn't come back to some domestic human thing. He was always bringing it back home to show analogies between what was going on in these facts and how they bear on our lives. So he was teaching us to see analogically the analogies of being. The modern world, scientific world, puts us in abstractions. Ishmael was showing us that there are these ties, these interconnections between things that that made the world much richer, um, its meanings greater, deeper, um, and he always related it back to human things. And Remember, Ahab has only one way of looking at things, for the most part. He wants to kill that whale, so he wants to get from here to here. Ishmael is open. He, he's, he's aware of mysteries and he's bringing together his readings. I've been suggesting that he's actually teaching us to read because too often we read and it just seems to me Christians are so susceptible to doing this, Catholics, everybody. We tend to read self-righteously. We have a belief that's the way things are. Ishmael is opening the world. He's showing that there are these mysteries to things and his openness brings them to us. So while we're on this Ahab quest, this richer world is being given to us through him. Um, But the last part of the plot is the plot that's taking that whole action towards a catastrophe, the destruction of the Pequod. It's all going to go down. So the last part of the plot focuses on Ahab. It's the first time we go into his inner life and we suddenly discover the the tender sides of this man. He's the only one who um, is affectionate to Pip and um, there's those exchanges with Starbuck at the railing where he cries, he weeps, and tells Starbuck to stay on board and then says it again when he goes out. So we see this large heart to this man. And even at the end, when in the, in the final chase, he says to Pip to stay below and he says, um, I'm going to murder you because being with Pip softens his heart and tempts him away from his quest. So we see a divided man in Ahab, and we know, and what will happen, and what, and it does that, that. the ship is is heading towards its destruction. It's finally destroyed by Moby Dick, and Ishmael is the one figure to um, survive it. So, but doesn't
3: that show his growth? His whose? Ahab's growth.
0: Hold off on that, will you? See, I, wait, I want to I want to get to him and focus, and that's sort of anticipating. I, I really want to hear what's behind that, but I, wait a minute, can you? I really do want to hear. Um, we talked about doubling, and you you remember that, right? The, the writers very often use a double for a central figure as a way of revealing things about that figure that you can't without destroying him. Dickens does it a lot. Dickens will represent will will um, render a character who's in his world always respect. It's this English Protestant world. They're very respectable. Their respectability is the sign that they're among the elect. That's the proof of their election. destroy that, you take away any meaning. So what he very often does is present a double um, who is wicked or debauched or you know, whatever it is, as a way of revealing qualities in that respectable character that he couldn't safely do. Pip is that character. By the way, Dostoevsky does the same thing. I've mentioned this, right? So you all know. We went over this, yes? Dostoevsky does the same thing a lot. Pip is a double, that kind of a figure. He's an outcast. He's black. Because he's black, he's despised. And he's little. He's nervous. Remember that scene we read when... um, Stubb warns him not to jump, and then he does, and then he takes him out again, and he tells him if he jumps again, he's going to leave him, and that's what he does. They they go after the whale and leave Pip in the ocean, and that's when Pip has that, what is really a mystical vision. He shows us the bottom of the underworld, and with God's foot on the treadle of the loom. Um, it's like he sees the origins, the workings of creation. Um... um I want to read some of the passages, so I don't want to say too much about them right now, except this. He's an image of that innocent, inherent goodness that Calvin made no place for. Because according to Calvin, all men were depraved. Pip's an image of some inherent goodness. That would be an image for a Catholic, because we don't believe in that ultimate depravity. We believe we don't believe the, the fault was complete, I mean the fall. We believe that man was wounded, but in his essence, still good. Pip is an image of that inherent goodness at the, according to Melville, at the center of every human being's soul. How many people see that goodness in this ship? Nobody. They scorn it. If I mean another way to put this, Let Christ come on board that ship. How many people would see Christ as Christ and not crucify him again? I'm supposing they would crucify him again. He'd get in the way of their voyage, what they're doing, making money, being successful. Um, Taking revenge for their wounds. pippas an image of that innocence that man carries within him, but that so often gets wounded and um, thrown to the side. Um, and, and it seems to me it's, it's interesting that he comes in when he does because he only comes in right at that point where Ahab's going to take over the plot it seems to me he's most fully an image of something in Ahab and he's fully an image of something in Ishmael Both. Um, so I want to come back to that But we talked about the historical background, I don't want to go into it again the, the, the corruption in the Catholic <coughs> Church Um, how great it was. Remember from the time that we did Dante, the investiture conflict, um, the Babylonian captivity when the papacy was moved to um, France and it came under the control of the French throne. We already talked about those with Dante. Um, And uh, what's called the, the, um, the territorial papacy. Right after the Babylonian captivity, there was a quarrel between contending popes, because there were two popes in the church, Um, one of them contending that the church shouldn't be in France because it was under the control of the French king. So there was this, what's called the great um, schism division, and that period was followed by what's called the territorial papacy. It returned to Italy, but it became absolutely corrupt. The, The popes had mistresses, they were involved in murders, there was incest. I mean, that was a part of the beginning of the Renaissance. It's, and, and stop and think about it, this is really important. That's when Luther comes into the world and is responding to these corruptions. And um, one of the results that bear directly on our story is that the Protestant groups, the Reformation groups that were forming, were were, large, were in part responding to the corruptions of the church. And it took various forms. And you know this, Henry put the church under his control that founded the, what we know as the Anglican Church, Anglican Catholic Church. He declared himself the sovereign supreme leader of all things, including doctrines, which, which a king has no power to do. So that was the effective removal of the Catholic Church from England, and one of the things that helped break down the, the, the proper relationship between the, um, the king and the pope historically across Europe. One of the effects of Henry's doing that was that other, other groups began to break off because they saw Henry as not going far enough, that it was still an established church, corrupted, now under the king. They called themselves Puritans. So the Puritans broke off from the Anglican church, and um, there are other groups formed called Separatists. The Puritans still identified with the Anglican Church. They believed that it was the true church, but that its reforms had not gone far enough. The separatists believed that that was false, that they had to break entirely away from the Anglican Church because it was corrupt at its roots. And so you can can see the beginnings of the fragmenting that goes on with the Protestant, the Reformation movement. But the importance for us is this. Two of those groups went north to the Netherlands, The Puritans and the separatists, they formed a congregation there. They lived under Calvin's rule, his his tenets. But they soon saw that they were were losing their English heritage, and they still could not live their beliefs as they wanted to. So they made these arrangements to the crown, got a charter, and came to America. And that's the founding. Now keep in mind that the groups that were there (coughs) had those two different beliefs. Puritans, separatists. The Puritans still believed the Anglican Church was the right one, but the reforms didn't go far enough. The separatists believed that the Anglican Church was corrupt and wanted to get away. Those groups were the founding fathers of our country, and both of them were Calvinists. Neither one of them believed in the sacraments or priests that consecrating the host was not a part of what they did. That's why, we, remember, weeks ago we talked about the Eucharist and how What happens if you take the Eucharist away to a Christian community? But here's the important thing. Both of those groups were Calvinist. Um, They didn't believe in a priesthood or a priestly class. They didn't believe believe in the sacraments, not in the way the Catholic Church does. Even though they were divided on their response to the Anglican Church, they were united in one thing. They were united in being against the Catholic Church because they saw the Catholic Church as corrupt. All these ceremonies and rituals. And now, why is that important for this reason? Um, because it goes to Ahab and what's going on. Yeah, now this I wanted to do the GANs, we're not going to be able to do them. But I would, let me, let me take a break here, because I've, I've got to mention these just for a moment. I, we're not going to do the GAMs, here's what I would like you all to do. If you take out that sheet sometime after, the, not today, but you know, next week, because we're going to put Moby Dick down. Take a look at those GAMs and, and, and do it with this in mind, that every one of those GAMs shows more about themselves in their response to the mystery of Moby Dick than they do about Moby Dick himself. Each one is defining. and I used the example last time. Think about the stations of the. By the way, just remember this, just remember this. this is... God, there's so much going on in this work. Everybody's out to kill Moby Dick. Don't ever forget that. We can get so caught up in the story. What's at issue here is an industrial enterprise that has as its aim the destruction of this human creature, I mean this natural creature, because it, 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 they can profit from it. Remember, I mean, the opening chapters were clear in that. Here are these two Quakers who who commit themselves as pacifists, and yet all they do is destroy these creatures. so. So at the center of this mystery is this creature that is hunted to be killed and used for man's benefit. So when you look at the Gams, remember that each one of them reveals more about themselves than they do about the mystery of Moby Dick. And I use the analogy of the stations of the cross. If you if you remember that Christ is wounded, he's scourged, he's about to be crucified. He carries his wounds. I'll carry this over to Moby Dick just for a second, but he's in the stations of the cross. He's carrying a cross. He's wounded. He can almost not bear the cross. Um, um, he gets help. Simon, I think, is it who offers help, and then Veronica offers to wipe the sweat. Now picture this. Along that path, there there are obviously people who knew Christ and what he was. And they could have done nothing but weep, I suppose. There had to be people along that trail who spit at him, who jeered and made fun of him. Because to him, he's just this ragtag rebel who's done something stupid against Rome or the Jews. And all they could feel was scorn for him. They don't know him. So if you, look at the, if you look at the Stations of the Cross, imagine the great variety of ways people would have responded to him without seeing really what was at stake. Is that clear? So think about Moby Dick that way because that's what has done. He's lined up all these gams. Remember, they're news for home, so we can look right past them, not even see. I mean, that's what poets do. We can go right by and not even see what's going on, as, as in our life he's teaching us to see things differently put all the gans up look at the various responses and suddenly a whole new way of looking at the world opens all in relation to this mystery of Moby Dick what how do we what do we come away from this book with and that's to go to the Ishmael question what are we supposed to take away from this story okay um... now to get to get back here um, the plot has moved us towards the end. We're going to look at Ahab in a minute. I want to just do readings. One of the images that I'd like everybody to just think about is the hammering, because it's fascinating to me. It, 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 Melville's doing something powerful here. You know that in the last, um, um, I don't know what it is, quarter of the book, from the time that um, Ishmael has the, co- the coffin made From the time that Ahab has a new leg make after he meets the um, enderby and he goes back to his deck and he snaps his leg and he has to ask the carpenter. From those moments forward, hammering becomes one of the major motifs for the last part of the novel, the epic. And it becomes particularly strong in the last three chase scenes. And in the very last um, scenes, Ishmael Melville is describing the chase in terms of hammering. Ahab here is hammering on the ship. The stoveboats have gone on and they're trying to repair their ships. Tishtigo is hammering the flag to the mask. He describes the waves as hammering. Why all this hammering? It's like it's imposed everywhere. It's like a metaphor to describe something going on. Why does he use that metaphor? And now I want to get to the readings because I want to, um, I want to, I want to read some of the passages and pull some of this together. So we can get to these questions. Let me take a second. Before, I, I want to get um, um, to your question about Ahab, but um, but let me. Any questions about what I've just went over rather quickly? But I want to get to these readings because I want you to put a lot of these things of Ahab together, hold them onto your mind, so we can look at him and then and ask this question: How do we look at him and Shmuel at the end? Anything? Kathy, do you have a question? (laughs) I don't believe that. No? Okay, let's, I want to do some reading. (coughs) Um, Chapter 36, page 208. We're going to bounce around a little bit here. Um, I hope you'll pardon me for this. I'm going to speed read. I mean, I, I want to. I want you all to have this stuff on your mind um, before we come to this question about Ahab and Ishmael. 208. Remember, he has just um, in this very ritualistic way performed another of actions and told the crew what it is he's got on his mind and he gets all of them to commit themselves to this vengeance quest. Starbuck is the one who's most reluctant, and, and Starbuck says at the top of um, 208, Vengeance on a dumb brute, cried Starbuck, that, that simply smote thee from blindest instinct. It's the most natural, rational thing to say. Madness, to be enraged with a dumb thing, Captain Ahab, seems blasphemous. Harky yet again, the little lower layer, all visible objects, man, are but pasteboard masks, but in each event, in the living act, the undoubted deed, there some unknown but still reasoning thing puts forth the moldings of its features from behind the unreasoning mask. If man will strike, strike through the mask. How can the prisoner reach outside? He, he sees himself, he sees all, this is very platonic, he sees all of us as prisoners. That there's some indignity, there's something wrong. Um, reach outside except by thrusting through the wall. To me the white whale is that wall shoved near to me. Sometimes I think there's not beyond, but tis enough. He tasks me, he heaps me. I see in him outrageous strength with an inscrutable malice sinewing it. That inscrutable thing is chiefly what I hate and be the white whale agent or be the white whale principal, I will wreck that hate upon him. Talk not to me of blasphemy man. I'd strike the sun if it insulted me. For could the sun do that, then I could do the other. Because if if the whale is um, an image of this mask, how can the sun not be either? What's beyond? The most important thing to see here is Ahab's quest is metaphysical. He doesn't see things. Remember we talked about the tragic hero. He's always a noble-souled person who sees something other people don't. It's Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas, Dante, Ahab. He sees something others don't. <clears throat> he'll get the men involved in his quest, go to the next page, or the page 213. This, this chapter seems to me very important. The very next thing that happens is the sun goes down. Myself, I take that as a, as a ratifying of what Ahab just did. That he committed himself to this hellish quest, and the sun going down symbolizes that in his own soul. That in some sense we're meant to see that his soul is lost going down. Now, these are all relative. Just hold on. Um, <coughs> 2.13. He's meditating on what just took place. They think me mad. Starbuck does. But I'm demoniac. I am madness man That wild madness that only calmed to comprehend itself. The prophecy was that I should be dismembered. This was from his early years. And I, I lost this leg. I now prophesy that I will dismember my dismemberer. Now then, be the prophet and the fulfiller one. Now, see the irony here with with Christ. Christ allowed himself to be dismembered when he was the prophet. So as prophet, he, he was prophet and the one who was dismembered, not the one doing the dismembering. The one that did the dismembering was the um, was the Jewish hierarchy in the Roman world. I will not say as a schoolboy does to Billies, take some of your own size, don't pommel me, no, ye knock me down and I am up again, but ye have run and hidden. Come forth from behind your... Co-. He wants to get behind to the evil behind things. That's his motive. Swerve me, you cannot swerve me, else ye swerve yourselves, man has ye there. Swerve me, the path to my fixed purpose is laid with iron rails whereon my soul is grooved to run. He can no more get off those tracks than something that was predestined. Over unsounded gorges, through the rifled hearts of mountains under torrents beds, canarily I rush. Knots an obstacle, knots an angle to the iron way. He's fixed. Go to, um, let's see, nine, chapter 93, page 483. Um, that I just this is a reminder. I'm not going to read it, but it's um, 43. Is this is at the bottom of the page? Is that description of the mystic vision that Pip has? Remember, just remember that that it's it's so powerful. He saw God's foot upon the treadle of the loom and spoke it, and therefore his shipmates called him mad. So man's insanity is heaven's sense. That's another way in which Pip doubles Ahab. Because to everybody on that ship, Ahab is mad. But he's also trying to get to something none of those other men want to even risk. Um, Chapter 106,
2: 536.
0: I want you to hold on to this because... This is going to the conclusion we're, we're about to get to here. had having his leg built, a new leg built by the carpenter, and he, it leads into this meditation on suffering. He's lost a leg. He had to suffer the humiliation of having lost it again. And he keeps looking at the carpenter as if he's a mechanical man. That like, like the modern computer, I, I hate people who look at humans as a product of just material forces, so you can, if he loses a part, you can replace it and we can create a human being. Um, at the bottom of 536, um, Yea, more than equal, at the top of the next page, thought had, since both the ancestry and posterity of grief go farther than the ancestry and posterity of joy. He's saying, grief seems more fundamental to the universe than joy, that if you look back, it goes back farther than joy, and if you look forward it goes beyond joy. So it seems to be more metaphysical, more ontological. Its roots are greater than some goodness. For not to the hint of this, that it is an inference from certain canonic teachings, that while some natural enjoyments here shall have no children born to them for the other world, but on the contrary shall be followed by the joy childlessness of all hell's despair, whereas some guilty moral misery shall, shall still fertilely beget to themselves an eternally progressive progeny of griefs beyond the grave. Not at all to hint of this there seems an inequality in the deeper analysis of the thing, for thought Ahab, while even the highest earthly felicities ever have a certain unsignifying pettiness lurking in them, but at bottom all heart woes a misty significance and in some men an archangelic grandeur. So do their diligent tracings out not belie the obvious deduction? To trail the genealogies of these high mortal miseries carries us at last among the sourceless primogenitors of the gods. If we trace griefs and joys back, we'll get to the gods ultimately. But since grief goes farther back, the inference, the logical conclusion, um, you can't miss. Um, to to trail the genealogy of the high mortal miseries carries at last among the sourceless primogenitors of the gods so that in the face of all the glad haymaking suns and soft cymbaling round harvest moons all these joyful moments, occasions for celebration we must needs give in to this that the gods themselves are not forever glad The ineffaceable sad birthmark in the brow of man is but the stamp of sorrow in the signets that is in the origins, the original. I want to go on because we're still getting to the, sorry for this, but I don't know how to do this. Um, let me try to just add this gloss. This is a personal gloss, so I hope I'm not misreading or doing an injustice to Melvin here. What he's describing is, it seems to me, absolutely faithful to our life as we know it, here on Earth, okay? I don't think anybody in this room would disagree, maybe, but I, but let me offer this. We understand, I certainly do, I believe we all do, that we all live under the effects of the Fall. We can't escape them in this life, we will not. We, we owe God a death. We owe Him a death. We live under the effects of the Fall. All of us know this we can have these moments of absolute bliss Um, we can be absolutely happy with our spouse one afternoon and find ourselves red-faced the next you know over something going on we have these experiences of joy and they feel like they'll go on forever but we know two days later they're gone and we're living in the, the most awful sorrowful kind of depression it's as if it's as if we, no matter how happy we think we are and would like to be, we are constantly plagued by miseries. So, Melville, I think, is being absolutely faithful to our experience in the world. That the, no matter how happy you are, those, those, the moments of happiness are fleeting. That they're always followed by some misery, some sorrow. So, what, in this meditation, to take it back to its origins, he's suggesting that there must be. A misery at the origins before joy ever comes into it, the gods are not always glad. Now hold on to that because I'm building up to where we're going in a minute, but this is part of Ahab's belief. And remember the question that I asked two weeks ago, where, where did Ahab get these beliefs? He doesn't live in a vacuum. Everything he's struggling with he inherited from his Protestant culture. And in this one it's a dark gloomy sense. The grief precedes joy. But the ultimate source of things are grief-giving. Take a look at um, page 596. This is the log in line. <coughs> this is that moment when Ahab has lost the quadrant, he's lost the compass, he had to build a new one, and now he wants to get to the log and line to get a measurement of the ship's speed. He asks him to throw the log in line over and it snaps. The Maxman is asked to help get it um, on page 596 with a Tahitian sailman. The Maxman says to Pip who's nearby, help us out. So Pip is asked, now remember in the, in the chapter in which Queequeg asked to have his coffin built, Queequeg is inside the coffin with his hands on his chest, Pip comes over to him and holds his hand. Um, in, a, in an endearing way, almost as if he affectionately knows this has to do with death. So we've already seen that scene. And we know that everybody scorns him after the jump. At <coughs> the bottom of 96. So Pip pitches in to help here. There he goes now, to him nothing's happened, but to me the skewer seems loosening out of the middle of the world, haul in, haul in, Tahitian. These lines run whole and whirling out. Come in broken and dragging slow. Ha, Pip, come to help. Huh, Pip? He comes, Pip. Whom you call Pip? Pip jumped from the whaleboat. Pip's missing. Let's see now if you haven't fished him up there, fisherman. It drags hard. I guess he's holding on. Jerk him, Tahiti. Jerk him off. We haul in no cowards here. Remember, Stubb spurned him. He went off for a ship. Now, and remember what I said. He's a devil, he, he's an image of a dissociated being. And I tried to suggest last time, we imagine any of us in a moment when we're sinning, <coughs> whatever the sin happens to be. In those moments when we sin, how easy it, is it for us to call to mind an image of this innate goodness, this inherent goodness that we, that's imaged in Pip. He's an image of a dissociated being he's he's Pip and not, he talks about himself as if he's dissociated, as if Pip is another creature, so in some sense it's almost like he has no identity. In this world of, of wealth and power, who has an identity like that? When everybody's encouraged to see themselves in terms of wealth, success, power over another person, Pip's going, ho, leave him there, jerk him off, we haul no cowards here. Oh, there's his arm just breaking water, a hatchet, a hatchet. Who wants to cut the arm off. We all know cowards here, Captain Ahab. Sir, here Pip's trying to get on board again. Peace, thou crazy loon! Cried the maxim, seizing him by the arm. Away, away from the quarterdeck, Ahab. The greater idiot ever scolds the lesser. Hands off from that holiness. Where thou, where sayest thou Pip was? He's the only one who enters into Pip's world with him and can speak there. Um, Talks with him within that world. Who art thou, boy? I see not my reflection in the vacant pupils of thy eyes. O God, that man should be a thing for immortal souls to see through. Who art thou, boy? Bellboy, sir, ship's crier, ding-dong, ding-dong, Pip, Pip, Pip. One hundred pounds of clay, reward for Pip, five feet high, looks cowardly. Quickest known by that, ding-dong, ding who's been, who's seen Pip the Coward, there can be no hearts above the snow line. I love this. What he's saying is, there's no God. There can't be hearts above the snow line, there can't be gods in the heaven, or they would not allow this to happen, what's happening. This is Ahab. There can be no hearts above the snow line, O ye frozen heavens, look down here, ye did beget this luckless child and have abandoned him, ye creative libertines, It's like the gods are playing with humans. Here, boy, Ahab's cabin shall be Pip's home, henceforth, while Ahab lives. Thou touchest my innermost center, boy, thou art tied to my cords woven of my heartstrings. Come, let's down. What's this? Here's velvet sharkskin. He's holding Ahab's hand. He says velvet sharkskin. Who could say that of Ahab? Intently gazing at Ahab's hand and feeling it on uh, now had poor Pip, but felt so kind a thing as this. Perhaps he had never been lost. This seems to me, sir, as a man wrote something that weak souls may hold by. Oh, sir, let old Perth now come and rivet these two hands together, the black one with the white, for I will not let this go." This is almost like an extension of what happens with um, Ishmael and Kwikwig at the beginning. Everybody looks at them in scorn. They are tied together. The monkey rope. Ratifies it. Here you've got this little black boy, scorned by everybody. Ahab saying he will not let him go, and Pip saying rivet our hands together. Um, O boy, nor will I thee, unless I should thereby drag thee to the wrong, to the worst horrors that are here. Come then to my cabin. Lo, yet believe in God's all goodness and in man all ill. Lo, you see the omniscient God's oblivious of suffering man and man though idiotic and knowing not what he does, yet full of the sweet things of love and gratitude. Come I feel prouder leading thee by the black hand than though I grasp an emperor's. This is Ahab. Um, <clears throat> page 582. Um, this is Ahab in the, in the, remember when the candle in the, the storm, when the lightning strikes the mast and they're all luminous? At um, the bottom of 581, O oh, thou clear spirit of clear fire, whom on these seas thy Persian once did worship, till in the sacramental acts so burned by thee that to this hour I bear the scar, I know not thee, thou clear spirit, and I now know that thy right worship is defiance. Now, stop. If you grew up in a scientific universe to believe that all things in the universe were impersonal forces, that humans were a product of impersonal forces. If there's something inherently in, imaged in, in, of God in man, what would you do with a response like that? Ahab's response is defiance. The idea that that we're a product of these forces so offends him that all he can do is defy them. No fearless fool now fronts thee, I own thy speechless, placeless power but to the last gasp of my earthquake, life will dispute its unconditional, an integral mastery in me. In the midst of personified, impersonal, a personality stands here. It's like saying, humans are not just a product of forces. Here is a man with a personality. Um, We're almost done. On page six oh two, when he's responding to the carpenter, he likes him to the gods, and he uses this phrase: "You don't have to go." He says, "As unprincipled as the gods," because over and over again, he there's something wrong with these gods. This evil that's everywhere around. Um, On page six thirty seven.
2: Hmm?
3: Where's Ahab's sense of responsibility? He says the gods are—they um, don't see all the suffering man's going through, but he's kind of inflicted it uh, by taking these men on
0: board. Yep. The yep. Hold on. Yes. Hold on. Yes. Yes. Couldn't agree more. Um, the second day, um, he discovers that um, Fadala is gone. The bond of six thirty-seven. Two days chase, twice stove to splendors, thy very leg once more snatched from under thee, thy evil shadow gone, all good angels mobbing thee with warnings, what more wouldst thou have, shall we keep chasing this murderous fish till he swamps the last man, to be towed by him to the infernal world, this is Starbuck, warning Aham, off again, the top of 638, Starbuck of late, I felt strangely moved to thee ever since that hour we both saw. But in this matter of the whale, be the front of thy face to me as the palm of this hand, a lipless, unfeatured blank, Ahab is forever. Ahab, man, this whole axe immutably decreed, twas rehearsed by thee and me a billion years before this ocean rolled. Fool, I am the fate's lieutenant, I act under orders. Look thou, underling, that thou obeyest mine. And then he will say um, to Starbucks, stay on board again. I can't. um, In the last chase scene, um, he will um, see um, Fadala tied to the whale, and all of the prophecies will come true. The two hearsts he's recognized. The hemp he knows so like all tragic heroes he has this moment of recognition that he sees that everything that he saw was wrong now um, I can't remember when he throws the last dart you don't have book when he throws the last dart. he says out of hell he's throwing that but leave it okay here's let me put all of this together just for a minute because I want to put these questions back to you guys and, um, Shefali's been, I want to hear all, sorry for you, but here. It
3: doesn't go any deeper.
0: <laughs> um, I, don't know, I, don't, I don't believe, I don't believe that. But here, here a couple of weeks ago, remember I told you that I had always um, really believed that I saw the implications of, the, of Calvinistic thinking for Ahab and how important it was. Um... But I was always troubled that I really, that there was something that was missing. Um, in the book, in the essay that I've written, if you've read that essay you know that towards the end of it I say that I really believe that um, Melville in this story is exercising Protestant demons. And I believe that, still do. But I don't think I saw it at the bottom of it, and then a series of things happened. I think I told you guys about them. I'd met with this woman at the wreck who is Calvinistic. And that was at a time when I believed, nobody believed in Calvin. And the reason I say that is because I couldn't, I mean I just could not conceive, imagine anybody holding on to those beliefs. Um, Then a a friend at the record, a a young kid who's writing the book, was talking a couple weeks ago, he's writing a story, and he said that he believed evil was in God. I can't believe that, I mean for, and I gave him the reason, it seems to anybody if you think through this, you come to a point where you have to realize, to make that conclusion is un, absolutely unreasonable. Good and evil can't coexist. If, he, if, if good is good life-giving and evil is life-destructive, they cannot coexist together. If God is complete in himself, he's complete, then he lacks nothing. Um, and in, the, the Manichaeans and Zoroastrians, the ancient Eastern religions, believe that good and evil were co-eternal. The Eastern religions still do this today. There's an element of that in eastern religions that's a truncated philosophy if good and evil are co-eternal there's no reason not to choose evil and i don't even know if you can have a will in it if they're co-eternal you're going to go on anyway right if if they're co-eternal live forever and be evil what's the you're not going to lose anything from good the only sensible philosophy is that god is completing himself all goodness and that evil is a privation. God, the Bible, made it, said it was good. God made nothing evil. Everything he made was good. Evil came into the world with the angels' fall. They rejected God and Adam and Eve when they fell. So evil is something we make by our actions. There's nothing inherently evil. Now, the, the reason, I'm, this, I've got to be emphatic about this because this is going to Ahab and what blew this work open for me. I'd never been able to admit in my life that anybody could believe that God possessed evil, that evil was in him. Calvin is saying that. The argument that I put to this woman when I went to her was this: I didn't want to make it in religious terms. But I didn't want to chase her off. If, if, human, if, if human beings come together to make a child, man and woman conceive, they cannot, conce- they cannot make the immortal part of man. That comes from God because he's immortal, we're not. How do you explain somebody being predestined to be damned? If somebody's predestined to be damned and God is the source of the immortal immortal soul, then God is creating an evil. There has to be something in him latently evil. That's one way of looking at it. The other is if, if humans have no free will, according to Calvin, and they don't. That means there's only one will in the universe. Where does evil come from? So implicitly what Calvin did was seat evil in God. Um, I mean, how he would answer that, I don't know, but, um, but it's when I finally admitted that that I put this problem to you th- th- a couple of weeks ago. You know, you're, you're gonna see if, if you stay with this for a couple more weeks, when we do sound in the fury, Sound of the Fury is going to open. It's going to have four sections, four different people. The opening section is, is the world as we experience it through, through an idiot. It's going to seem very... If you think anything you've read up to this point is hard, wait till you read the Benji episode. Benji's an idiot. And what Faulkner does with him is amazing because we get the world through an idiot exactly as he perceives it. We've got to put it together. That's going to take some doing I believe Father Faulkner was helped in this by his reading of Melville. He loved Melville. He said of Moby Dick, I wish I'd written it. He loved him that much. And here's what I asked you a couple weeks ago. Imagine that you're Melville and you've grown up in this Calvinistic world in which people have no free will, none, and some people are predestined to be damned. They have no choice in the matter. So from that perspective, you have to say God is going to be pleased when one of the creatures he predestined to be damned, in fact is damned. I mean, I I just, that is so inhuman to me that I don't even, but, so, from that perspective joy and misery has got to be prior to any joy or goodness. So imagine Melville growing up in in this culture, and because of because he has the brilliance of mind, he can deal with metaphysical things. How many people are going to ask themselves questions like this in, a, you know, in that culture? No, you're not going to ask. Look, Peleg does it, it, Mrs. Hussey, Peter Coffin. They're Christians just going about their lives. We know from the story that Melville is looking at metaphysical things, that Ahab and Ishmael's quests are both metaphysical. Ahab wants to strike out at the evil, Ishmael good. What if you grew up and you wondered what it was like to be one of those souls that was predestined to be damned? How would you live your life? It seems to me Ahab is carrying something of that in him. Now stop and think because I've I've said this before but I'm trying to put it together because I want to get this, I want to put this question on you guys. In every other epic that we've read, the epic hero is always Um, taking on an enemy, and he always commits some fault, what the Greeks called the hamartia, the tragic fault. But as we've seen, every epic hero has a moment of recognition and a turn, and I would argue none of them is damned. Not Achilles, not Odysseus, not Aeneas, not Dante, not Othello, Lear, Hamlet. Um, They're all noble men, they undergo a fall. Um, Ahab, in Moby Dick, Ahab is the only epic hero who sees as his foe nature itself. That there is something inherently evil in nature and living out the implications of that belief, he defies that evil. So the greater part of his life is a, a battle against evil. He's not, doing bad, he's not doing bad things. He's, he's struggling against these horrible beliefs. He was raised that way. And it seems to me one of the reasons he's so sympathetic with Pip and why, why he shows such a good heart with um, Starbuck. And while he speaks these poetic lines he does throughout the whole book, he has a noble soul. He, he, he feels humiliated in the face of these things that look at him that way. And he wants to defy them. So we've got a tortured human being, unlike any human being that I've known in all of my literature. What do we make of him? So that's, it seems to me, and and this is the American founding. The American founding, and we're going to see something very different in the south, when we start going to Moses, there's going to be a plantation founding. The northern foundation was religious, and the religious roots of America are Calvin. Absolutely. That's our, those are our origins, that dark view of the world. Ahab is the exorcism, I think, of, I mean, he's the only person who's been created in literature who shows the working out of the implications of those beliefs, and it's extraordinary. So here's my question, two questions. Is he damned? He uses all the people on board the Pequod, their objects, to help pursue his quest. He's called blasphemous by Um, He doesn't turn back. So from Melville's perspective, and remember Ishmael. Ishmael is an outcast. He has stepped outside of that culture. So we've got two different responses to that Protestant culture. Ishmael on the one hand and Ahab on the other. Is Ahab damned? He brings the ship to its ruin. And all the men go along with it. Are they damned? Is this an apocalyptic? Is this ironically the fulfillment of everything in Calvin that that's where everybody's going anyway? Is he damned? Now, having said that, I want to add this question. From Melbourne's perspective, is he? Just treat that as one question. Now, see that from the perspective of a Catholic who knows that's the way he was raised. He had no other way of looking at things. How would God, as we know him, look at this man? Is he damned? Is that clear? Because if you put those two things together, it infinitely complicates this story. Is that clear? Was it clear? Okay, what's your answer? Is he damned? How do you guys look at this?
1: I think he's damned in, from the Catholic perspective in that he's committing a mortal sin. He knows it's wrong. Yes, he believes he was destined to do this but he also has other people telling him the right thing, like Starbuck and Stubbs and Ishmael. They see it from a different view. They try to point it out to him, but he still chooses to go through to the end.
0: Okay, I've got an answer to that, but does does anybody want to answer, Lois? I mean, would you all agree with her or anybody disagree?
2: I disagree. Uh, If an individual, uh, I'm not talking about Ahab, if an individual is taken from say emphasize through adulthood, knowing no better, yeah. they're they're set. They're set in life. Because that's the way they were brought up. Yeah. Nothing else could change that.
0: Yeah. Unless it's was version. No,
2: oh yeah. yeah. But still that's
1: almost impossible.
0: Let me let me let me I'm
1: me. playing Dennis advocate because I have
0: But I'm glad you I'm glad you do. Let me let me yeah, just bring this one. For a number of I don't think the text bears out what you say, for, and that's the guide for me. I want to, I'm trying to always be careful of beliefs, because I'm trying to, I've got to be faithful to this text and the, and the truth of it, so, I don't, first of all, I don't find anything in the text making it clear that he's aware that he's doing something morally wrong. I can't find a passage. you said he's, he knows he's doing morally wrong, I don't see that.
2: Wait, 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 let me just,
0: cause I want to take all, and then I want to give it back to you. First of all, I don't see him doing one thing that he understands to be morally wrong. According to the culture that he's been raised in, two of them, yeah. you've got a scientific worldview that looks at humans as forces. That's Remember, we started this court, this book. There are two traditions coming into collision, the scientific and the biblical, two very different ways of reading. Melville's take, uh, writing out of both of them. Ahab's modern in the sense that he, he sees himself as, he's being, he's, He's a man who sees that he's been asked to see himself in the world as if he's a product of these forces. And he rebels against that, he defies. Something human in him says, that's not right. The religious part of him says, everything is predestined that there are people who are damned and they certainly don't look at morality the way a Catholic would. So first of all, I don't see any in the book that shows he has a, he's aware morally that he's doing something wrong. And what was the other thing you said? Oh. Ishmael doesn't help him. I can't recall a time when Ishmael says anything to Ahab. When Starbuck opposes him, we're back in the Iliad. Remember his response. How many barrels of oil will this meet you? We're back in the Iliad where the worth of a man is determined by the amount of booty he has. Is that, is that enough to answer? We're back in the Iliad. By the way, I'm, re- I'm saying this really soon. We're back with Achilles. What Achilles revolted against was the idea that you could determine the worth of a person by putting a price tag on him. What we learn in the Iliad is that there's this intrinsic worth that we call honor. But it's not the honor that the world knows. The, world, uh, the honor is the world knows it is money. If this happens, you get this extra money, and you'll be okay, you'll be paid off. Remember that. Remember the I hope I'm not going too fast here. The ninth book of the Iliad. Agamemnon gave him tons of money to get him back because he knows they're all going to die. Achilles said, Such honor is a thing I need not. I know I'm already honored in Zeus's ordinance. That Homer's the first one to show that there is this intrinsic honor that's linked with the divine and that man gets cheapened when he sees himself differently. Starbuck's argument is, how many barrels is that going to buy you? He came for money. Starbuck doesn't have a clue about what the nature of this quest. So I don't see anybody in the quake of Abel who has the metaphysical background that could answer yeah.
1: So go go ahead. Well, that, I think
0: mean, that's just one one. I I've, I've read some reviews of it. Yeah, be careful of cut. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. It makes me so angry. When I, I mean, what people do with Moby Dick, uh, the feminist, the Marxists, the Freudian. can you imagine? Imagine yes. <laughs> this huge whale. What a Freudian would do with that. <laughs> <laughs> Scratch that. <laughs> <laughs>
2: what? You got the environmentalist also in
0: there. Oh God! Yes, no, forget about that. Anyway, what what about the rest of you? Is he damned from Melville's perspective? Is he damned from a from a Catholic perspective? How do we look at Ahab here? It's funny. What I pick up now where you were. What what do you do with all this? How do you see Ahab here? I think he's kind of a
3: sympathetic character because he starts off so single-minded in his mission to kill Moby Dick he felt he was wronged, but through those exchanges with Pip and with Starbuck, and I think he's got some reflection going on when he sees his, how he abandoned his wife and his child uh, to go on this journey. Mm -hmm. You know, I can't help but uh, feel sorry for him, too, that um, I think he's got an internal struggle, that he, he wants to abandon the mission, but he just can't, you know, I mean, there's the stronger force in him that's pushing him forward.
0: Yeah, if you go back to Mike's point a minute, I, I think I've, I've expressed this to you guys a number of times the last couple <coughs> of months, I don't know why it's taken hold of me recently, um, a couple of years ago I did this talk with Jared on Islam, and things that are important for us to know, but I've been thinking a lot about that. I guess because of this argument, ongoing argument with this fundamentalist friend that I've had who looks at Islams as if they're Satan figures that you know that but if, you, if you've been raised, to me it's an incredible incredible there's a lot here. Um, when we did Dante, one of the things that I suggested was that if we look at Catholic faith in, in the Middle Ages, it was an unreflective faith. There was nothing else to become. You grew up in a Catholic world, that's what you became. You never reflected on the nature of your thoughts. I, I've been reading Belloc, whom I admire a lot, who keeps talking about Catholicism as if we could recover a lost world that we once had in the Middle Ages. And I think he's mistaken. There's no way we're going to go back to that world. The world has moved on, and an interesting thing from my perspective is this: in that world, people couldn't be anything other than Catholic. In our world, you have a choice. It's a world of conflicting beliefs. But it, I mean, I so struggle with this. If you if you've been raised Islam and brought up under the law, and I know lots of I've met lots of people who are Islamic who are very gentle i met a lot who are really arrogant because they, that legalistic spirit can make somebody. But there are lots of people who are romantic, gentle. If you've grown up and you have no re- like Kwee if you have no reason to convert because of what you see in Christians and the way they live their lives, why would you even have a thought about converting? And how does God, our God, look at that person? Is he going to be damned? I don't believe that um, if he's a merciful God that we think he is if you've grown up a Protestant believing in Calvinistic tenets even if you're not even aware of them today because they're they're buried so deep in the past but they're the things that have influenced your life the way you look and how will God see you? I mean we believe in Catholics that that those things are all related to us but that we're trying to live the truth as Christ presented it so the greater fullness of his truth is here does that mean all Catholics live it? Absolutely not. Dante's hell is full of Catholics. But at least if it is the truth, the, the, the sacramental help and all of it, then presumably anybody who takes his faith seriously should be doing something very different from what a Protestant or a Muslim would do. But if you're Ahab and you've been raised in this culture, and that's what you believe, then how do we look at his tragic action, the fact that he um I don't find I don't find him aware of a moral good in the way that we do. He 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 left his wife, lots of men, you know, who lived whaling ships spend their <laughs> I can remember twenty years ago and he used to teach the Odyssey because Odysseus had been away from home for twenty years. And my take on it was here's modern America. How many fathers see much of their kids over a twenty-year period? That's been a truth since Odysseus's time. Men are away from home. Um He's defined what, in his mind, is an evil. Um, so, it's a, it, and it, it's a question in my mind: How Melville looked at that? What does he look? How would we look at it? It's it's, a, it's so complicates. Um, so complicates. One thing that
2: uh, you can point out is that how can you judge when you have not learned about the different uh, aspects?
0: And not only and not only learn, but felt in your heart to 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 move in sorrow because you see the wrong of something. If that's not been something cultivated in you, how can you how can you love? Because it, we're supposed to be called together by the basis of our love and faith, not so much knowing about things. But if you don't know and you've not been taught to feel these things, then how can you respond appropriately? Um, so it ra- so the, one of the problems this book raises for me is this whole question of belief. Um, America is largely Protestant. Underlying it are Luther and Calvin, and most people grew up believing that, living that out in some way or another. And remember the question that I put to you guys a month: so, Can a Christian culture? prevent itself from declining into a moral code without the sacraments. And once it becomes a code, and it will, then how can it cease being legalistic? People will live it legalistically. And we're back in a Jewish world. It isn't love. It isn't mercy. It isn't a cross. The cross isn't there. Who goes to a cross? Why should they? Catholics don't. So for me, what Melville did was just, I mean, he took Christianity in America and it just sort of exploded it when I started putting this all together. Debbie, you've got something. What's
1: No, no, actually, I, I, don't, I don't. I just think what you're, what you're saying is, is absolutely right. And when you said that, that if it declines or decays to a moral code, and you said, and it will, I think it has. Yeah, I, I, it does it, for Catholics. It, Lots of Catholics it, yeah, live that way. Yes. I think that that's absolutely right, and and so once it once it does that, who decides what the moral code is? Because our moral code in this country is changing constantly. It's it's not the moral code that um, when I was five years old that it is now. I mean, it's I don't even know that there is a moral code. Well, it's the moral code of the masses. Yeah. And, yeah. and self-survival and self-preservation. Yeah. It really
0: goes back to Plato's Republic in that opening question. Those who decide are those who are in power. And, and the whole force of the Republic is to answer that question and put it to rest. To do that, you've got to read Plato. We've only got a couple minutes. So, Quick, so
1: I just, just one thing. Is that your question is, can, um, can you help without a back from a... For me? I don't, No, you can't. Because I think you're absolutely right. It, it does become a moral
0: code. You take away it's mystery true. when you take you, them away, you do. and you don't live in mystery anymore. You that live is. in this moral code with its rigidities to it. And here, quick, because um, I want Suzanne to hear this before she leaves, because she's got We've got to watch time. Here, last question: What does Ishmael bring back to us? Remember now. The. It, I mean, the way to look at this is this way remember the book is about Ahab, right? His, his quest. But it's told from the perspective of Ishmael, right? We only get Ahab because it's carried in him. He carries the story, he brings it back. And we have in Ishmael a story or a person who does everything very, very different, radically different from the way Ahab does. He comes back, he's the only one who survives the story. If he's a Jonah figure sent by God to tell the Ninevites what they needed to know. What is it that Ishmael must come back to tell us that we? it's really important for us to know? What is it? Yeah. Kathy?
2: Ishmael sees the goodness in nature and in the world.
0: That's of the things. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, you almost can't go deeper than that because he sees... I, I Ahab's, Ahab's got this evil on his mind constantly. In the
2: looming where he talks about everybody's a slave, you know, if the captain has deck, he goes and
0: obeys and he does, does it. He says, clap hands and be content. We all suffer that universal thump. So, be more accepting because it's true for all of us and it's true. There is a there's a patience, a goodness, um, and we see it chapter after chapter. But he, he does see this goodness.
2: I think we get so hung up in beliefs. The scene with uh, him worshiping with uh, Kwi Kwi, uh that was interesting. Yeah. You seem to be so caught up. You know, this is a Christian country, and, and it's what you believe, not how you act, that's important. Yes. And that's to yeah. Me, a big problem that I see today is that uh, we're so hung up on having correct beliefs instead of behavior.
0: Yeah, instead of loving. Mm-hmm. Anybody else? Kathy, what is Ishmael? Come on, I want. To, what do you? What do you think? What does he bring back? I
2: agree with what he's
0: said. Yeah.
3: Also, I think to let go of our anger and our hatred because
0: of what happened, you know, back to Ahab and his, yep. and his focus, here. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, because that's really at the heart of this, yeah. the wounds that everybody, it's out of Eden, the wounds that came out of Eden. and There's this wonderful openness to, to see that nature <coughs> is this extraordinary thing, it's this great gift, there's meaning everywhere, there's beauty, there's order. It shows the interconnectedness so we can go from one thing in its goodness to another (coughs) analogies. And at the same time, be careful, I don't want to sentimentalize this, Um, you know, he has those conversions. He has a conversion early on in Lumines when he, or afterwards when he and Kwiko are in bed. And he has that conversion um, with the uh, monkey rope when he says that there's this interregnum. And he learns that he's tied to Queequeg, no matter what's going to happen. He has that conversion with the sperm setting, the wringing hands with everybody, and looking lovingly in everybody's eyes. And that moment in the um, um, Armada scene, where he says, "No matter what's going on, there is this eternal joy at the center of my heart." That so unlike Ahab, he he's close to that joy. So it seems to me one of the one of the things he's doing is that he's bringing back a different way of looking at the world that's example in himself that there is a joy, you can find a humor in things, you can laugh at things because there is this goodness um, that's prior to and after the misery whereas for Ahab um, it begins and ends with misery and gloom and so he doesn't, I, I, he, it seems he does I mean, I'm stepping outside of the book. He's not taking us to Catholicism. I don't know where Melville would have been on that question. I, he, clearly would, he clearly was aware of it because remember, Ishmael, at the end of the book, long after the book takes place, he's in Lima telling that story to his Spanish friends of the, of the uh, steel kilt story. That's years later. And he calls the priest. So that Catholic world keeps sort of impinging it, keeps coming in. I don't see him going there but it seems to me that what what he's doing is taking us back towards a sacramental world that there is this wonder and goodness and if man would only love the right way um, and if you don't you see the consequences that there's this disaster so what he's brought back to us is living out these beliefs and the disaster that is their ultimate end that's where they're going to go or all that Ishmael Brings to life that survives it. That will—it's almost like a resurrection that comes out of it. Um, The the bringing back both of us. Okay. Go down, Moses. It's the southern story. Now we're getting closer to home. We—we went from Europe and Shakespeare and Dante and everybody to America with Moby Dick. We were in the north. Now we're gonna, we're heading yeah, we're heading south to see what it is we need to learn about ourselves I more even more immediately. Is that scary? Yeah. You guys continue to have a good land. I hope anybody's interested. Our art groups have. Been- Oh, yeah. It starts on Monday. It's in uh, the...